underwritten by H.A. Menage Corporation at the Berry Opera House, Saturday, August 15th at 7 p.m. For tickets, group rates, and complete concert details, call the Berry Opera House box office at 476-8188 or log on to berryoperahouse.org. It's time to get the story behind the story. Interviews with newsmakers, newsbreakers, and your phone calls. Radio Vermont presents The Mark Johnson Show. Thank you, Jim Connie. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the program. Thanks for tuning in. Beautiful day out there today. Thanks for spending part of it with us. Coming up on the program at the bottom of the hour, we're going to talk a uh, little Japanese politics, an interesting story developing over there uh, on the 70th anniversary of the conclusion of World War II. So that'll be coming your way in about 25 minutes. We'll uh, take your phone calls on the program as well, 244-1777. That's our local number in central Vermont. Toll free, you can reach us at 877-291-8255. We'll check in with our White House crew to begin hour number two. We will certainly ask them, I think it's a pretty significant development poll out uh, this morning or late yesterday with uh, Senator Bernie Sanders ahead of Hillary Clinton in New Hampshire. I mean, wow. Um, so we can chat about that, what some of the implications of that might be. We get right down to uh, business this morning, and uh, let's give a nice warm reading from a welcome this morning to Martha Elliott, who is the author of The Man in the Monster, an intimate portrait of a serial killer. Martha was working at the Connecticut Law Review as an editor-in-chief when, in 1995, she uh, first met Michael Ross, a serial killer who had had six death penalty sentences overturned, but uh, asked and requested that he, in fact, be executed and that there not be any retrials. Uh, Martha, thank you very much for joining us. How are you this morning? I'm great. Thank you for having me. So your first contacts with Michael Ross were things that he had submitted to the law review. What what were they? Oh, he would write uh, little commentaries on uh, cases, especially death penalty cases, or about uh, the death penalty in general. But uh, I really, really had not had any contact with him until he publicly came out saying that he did not want to have a new trial, that he just, when his death sentences were overturned, he just wanted to uh, accept death because he didn't want to hurt the victim's families anymore. How did you then establish contact with him and, and start this whole relationship and story? I wrote a letter to him in prison saying, would he agree to an interview? And he wrote back and said yes. And, of course, then I was faced with the possibility of being face-to-face with a man who had raped and murdered eight women, and I was petrified. Were you surprised that he said yes? Um, yes and no. I think I, I wanted him to say yes, but on the other hand, I didn't want him to say yes because it would mean that I had to actually meet him. Right. Because, uh, and... Uh, so, you know, you have, it's a group, it was a great story. I wanted to do the story, but on the other hand, it was going to be something that was terrifying to me. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking Jodie Foster. I have that, that image in my mind here for some reason. You weren't, yeah. an, you weren't an FBI agent, but I'm having that same sort of thought. Did you have that same thought too? Um, I had, per- I was 
you know, I was the last person in the world to do this story uh, because I hadn't even watched uh, Silence of the Lambs because I am not the type of person who watches scary movies. So uh, for me to even consider doing this story was incredibly out of character. Uh, I never in my life imagined that one day I would call a man who was a serial killer my friend, but it happened. Tell me about your first meeting with him. The first time he actually acknowledged me was when we were sitting in court. And he turned around and looked at who was there, and he mouthed to me, Are you Martha? And I was so petrified that I wanted to crawl under the the bench, even though there were four burly uh, state troopers guarding him with with weapons, and he was shackled. But I was still afraid of him because of what he had done. Uh, And then um, I talked to him on the phone. The first time I talked to him on the phone, I hung up after a 15-minute conversation, and I was drenched in sweat because I was so scared. But over time, I came to realize that the medication he was on had chained the monster in his head, and I was meeting this intelligent uh, uh, thoughtful, uh, truly repentant man. And I, uh, I, all those fears went away and I ended up talking to him, not on purpose, for 10 years. Why do you think he agreed to talk to you? Uh, I think, to be totally honest, because I was a journalist willing to listen to him, and give him uh, a chance to explain himself. Uh, He had no lifelines to the outside world other than his lawyer, and uh, he he found in me someone who was willing to uh, actually consider that he was mentally ill and that he really felt sorry for what he had done. I wanted to understand what had happened why it had happened, and I wasn't, even though I went there with a set of prejudices that said, You're good, this is going to be a scary guy, I still had a, a sort of open mind about uh, understanding his decision. Mm-hmm. Did you get too close? Um, you know, at the beginning, I kept the line between me and him in very professional journalistic, uh, you know, I've drawn the line in the sand kind of thing. But then over time, he kept calling me, and I didn't have the heart not to take his calls because here was this lonely guy who on death row had very few people he could even talk to. And so I, I kept talking to him, and then I decided to write a book and investigate really why he became what he became, who you know, he called it the monster, this, this compulsion that he had. I wanted to understand his mental illness. I wanted to understand what um, had driven him to do these horrific crimes. And uh, he, he was ready to accept any answer I came up with, even if I told him that he was a cold-blooded killer who, who uh, you know, was just killing to cover up his rapes. Um, he, he was desperate to have answers to what had happened to him. And 
And yes, he became my friend over time, and it was very difficult for me to admit that. I mean, who who wants to admit that they have a serial killer for a good friend? Mm-hmm. Uh, it makes people look at you a little strangely. Uh-huh. So what do you tell people? I, um, it takes a lot of explaining to how it all happened. It didn't happen overnight. It was something that happened gradually. And um, I developed this, this uh, friendship with him. We talked about all sorts of things, not always about his case, not always about his growing up, or, or I certainly didn't want to talk about the murders that much. But we, what we talked about were things like what was going on in my life, my trips he would hear, things going on in the background in my house or, or I'm sitting on my porch in Maine right now. He'd hear a loon and he would um, uh, say, what was that? And I'd tell him and he'd say, oh, it sounds scary. And I'd say, no, loons are great. And, um, we, you know, it was just mm. a, a conversation like you would have with, with your next door neighbor. And uh, one journalist listening to a tape of them said, this is too normal. Mm-hmm. You know, it, hmm. what, what but did, it was normal. But what? Uh, I mean, it is an odd friendship. But what, what did you? What did? What value did you get out of the friendship with somebody who's on on death row? I mean, other. I mean, you got a, a hell of a story. But other than that, what did you get? Um, I learned that I had uh, my own set of prejudices that that I would regard someone and put labels on them. I learned that um, we, that, that, you know, I thought he was going to be this lunatic and, and very scary guy like Hannibal Lecter, but he wasn't. And I learned to stop doing that, to meet people for, for you know, who they were and not make certain assumptions about them. I also learned about the flaws in the criminal justice system and the problems that we have with trying to uh, put someone on on uh, trial with a mental illness when it's a death penalty case. It just is almost an impossible task. Uh, I applaud the Aurora jury uh, in the James Holmes case for, for giving him uh, a life sentence because that was a courageous thing for them to do. Um, I I learned that, you know, if you look hard enough, you can find good in everybody. Mm-hmm. And I found good in a serial killer. And I had never really considered that. The Quakers are right. There's a little bit of the divinity in all of us. And we don't execute the worst of the worst. We, 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 it, it's a random system. It needs to be reformed. Martha Elliott's the author of The Man and the Monster, An Intimate Portrait of a Serial Killer. What did you learn about how his mind worked that would be useful for people to know? Um, he had a, a mental illness called sexual sadism. It's a paraphiliac disorder, which means that his sexual drive was attached to the wrong thing just like some people might be a, a, a pedophile or might be a, uh, a, have a foot fetish or something. But in his case, it was a horrendously, uh, at the very end of the, of the violent 
spectrum in that he he got sexual pleasure out of raping, humiliating, and murdering women. And um, once he got on medication, which basically chemically castrated him, it stopped total production of testosterone in his body, right. he stopped having these violent sexual fantasies. Mm-hmm. But, you know, go back here. I mean, when you say that you've learned now to put labels on somebody, I mean, the guy's a serial killer. I mean, that, I mean, I don't know if I would term that like as a label. Well, I mean, what I meant was that I made the assumption that all serial killers are somebody who's a stark, you know, who's like Charles Manson or who who's going to be like Cannibal Lecter that is going to be dangerous and 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 scary. Well, that's not necessarily true. And I think serial killers can feel sorry for what they they've done and have true remorse. It's just we can't make the assumption that that everybody, all serial killers, are alike because they're not. Mm-hmm. Did you met with them personally? I mean, did you ever feel unsafe? I did at that very beginning, but I, which was totally irrational because there was no reason for it. But I was in a maximum security prison. A, 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 I don't know if you've ever been in a supermax, but they are like tombs, and mm-hmm. and you are you are buried in this structure with, you know, concrete and glass between you and this person. And there was no way that he could ever harm me. Uh, I, I was um, uh, even though before he died. When, when we sat on death row where he was on a different place where they had bars on the, the, the cells, they put up this plexiglass um, a, a wall between him and his visitors so that there was no physical contact. I, I was never anywhere in a position that he could have hurt me. And I know he never would have mm-hmm. because... because he, he considered me his friend. How did you how did you honor the victims in this in this story? That was something I was determined to do. I wanted to to not just list his victims as names and ages. I wanted to know who they were. Now, not all the families wanted to talk to me, but I became very close with the Shelley family and talked to them all through. Um, the process, and um, even to this day, I talked to them. I talked to Mrs. Shelley several times in the last couple of weeks. She's read the book. She's very happy with the book. She said she learned a lot from it and that she was glad that someone told their story about what happened to them, how this whole, uh, not just Michael, but the legal system uh, uh, was difficult. Uh, on their family, what it did to them financially, what it did to them emotionally. In the end, Mr. Shelley uh, took a gun to his head and killed himself. Mm -hmm. Were you there for the execution of of Michael Ross? Yes, I was. It was something that I uh, had to think long and hard about whether I wanted to be there because I don't believe in the death penalty and I... I wasn't sure I could handle it emotionally, but after 10 years of talking to him, I didn't see how I could say no. And um, it was, uh, it, 
it was just something that it I will never be cured of. What was it like? Tell us. Well, I mean, the the worst one time was the time that they almost executed him, but they didn't. They waited until an hour before to announce that it was going to be called off, and that was the most. I think I had more anxiety that night than any time in my life because I didn't know what was going to happen. When they actually did, I knew that there was no way it could be stopped. And so I I had resigned myself to the fact that it was going to happen. And I spent several days um, going back, you know, in and out of the area where the death cell was and talking to him. And um, we talked about all sorts of things, about his book, his beliefs in, in God, about his, um, you know, his just all sorts of things. We joked, we even talked about his um, cleaning out the manure in his, in, on the chicken farm in, his, uh, in Connecticut. It was just one of those things where I tr- the last thing I wanted to talk to with him was about what was going to happen. Then we we finally were taken in there. There were first journalists, then they pulled a curtain, then the victim's families, then they pulled another curtain, and then they brought his witnesses in. And they finally, you know, opened this curtain to uh, a, to what looked sort of like a puppet show because it was um, uh, all, the set was all there. He had already been strapped in, and uh, they asked him if he would, wanted to give a last, uh, last words, and he said, no, thank you, because he felt that nothing he could say would be, um, would be anything but hurtful to the family, so he just decided to be silent and, and have it proceed. And it took about eight minutes to kill him. It, uh, he, I know he was petrified of, of the process of dying of what it would be like when they strapped him down and and put the needles in apparently they had a hard time putting them in i heard later but um he wasn't afraid of dying he he said he had he had made his peace and he was sure that god had forgiven him Mm. martha um thank you for your time this morning I, i greatly appreciate it uh, Martha Elliott is the author of The Man in the Monster, an Intimate Portrait of a Serial Killer. Uh, we were actually a little over time there, so uh, I didn't mean to end that abruptly there. I actually, believe it or not, I had a couple of other questions. All right, uh, we're going to take a short break. We're going to uh, change topics here. We're going to talk uh, about some of the uh, politics that's going on in Japan today. A couple of really interesting stories, including a debate about whether or not the prime minister should use the word apology when it comes to uh, World War II. So we'll uh, have that discussion coming up right after these important announcements. Sofas, sofas, and more sofas. Mattress Sofa Warehouse in Morrisville is having a sofa spectacular. Save as much as $100 off our regular price on Lazy Boy, Natalie, Pinnacle, and Mackenzie sofas. Plus savings on other overstock brands. Over 30 sofas and fabrics to choose from. This deal won't continue all summer, so hurry in and get the savings while supplies last. At Mattress Sofa Warehouse, 133 Gallery Lane, Morrisville. Don't miss it. 
We are high performance, low pressure. Mike Nicastro here from Walker Volkswagen in the Barry Montpelier Road, and I'm excited to announce that our summer model year end clearance event is happening now. Our goal is to sell all remaining 2015 inventory to make room for our incoming 2016s. I have instructed our staff to offer deeper discounts and higher trade values to achieve this goal. Combine this with Volkswagen's best incentives of the year, like 0% financing for up to 72 months, $1,000 bonus cash, and the lowest lease payments of the year. This truly is the best time to purchase your next Volkswagen. And only at Walker Volkswagen, we are including three years or 30,000 miles of scheduled maintenance with the purchase or lease of any new 2015 Volkswagen. This is a $400 value that will reduce your overall cost of ownership and keep your money where it belongs in your pocket. This is an exclusive offer only from Walker Volkswagen. Buying a Volkswagen is easy with Walker's upfront pricing. Stop by, call, or click walkervt.com for your easy upfront price. Walker Volkswagen, your source for everything Volkswagen on the Barry Montpelier Road and walkervt.com. This is Angela Winchell, nurse practitioner at Stowe Family Practice. Our clinic is open Monday through Saturday. We treat injuries and illnesses and walk-ins are welcome. We have on-site x-ray and diagnostic lab so we can assess you quickly. We are available to our patients by phone on nights and weekends. Next time you are hurt or sick, call us first. You might save yourself a trip to the emergency room. We are located in the medical center on the mountain road across from Picasso. So family practice. Call 253-4853. 802 Cars, it's our 8th annual employee pricing event. Hi, this is Dave Birmingham. At Twin City Subaru, you pay what we pay. Every new 2015 Subaru in stock will be sold at employee pricing, with no exceptions. You pay the same low price that we pay. Listen to our employees. So if I want a legacy, you pay what we pay. I want an Impreza. You pay what we pay. What about one of the all-new 2015 Subaru oil bikes? You pay what we pay. Don't forget my Forester. You pay what we pay.